Listening to the newest installment of My Take Radio Beyond the Mic. My guest this evening is Stephen Brooks. He is the creator of Rubber Onion Animation. We're going to be talking anime, animation, styles of animation, and just the overall evolution of the medium. In addition to that, we'll be learning a little bit about what the Rubber Onion Animation Company is about and some of the projects he's working on. Stephen, what's going on, brother? Not too much. Just hanging out, talking to you for a little bit. <laughs> Well, let's let's start with the easiest question. What is Rubber Onion Animation, and what inspired you to start it? Uh, Rubber Onion Animation is um, my virtual animation studio. Um, virtual animation studio meaning that there's not an actual physical place where a bunch of animators are. Um, but uh, the way it kind of works is I have a rotary um, list of uh, freelancers that I've worked with over the years or have become friends with and um some projects were coming my way and i couldn't i couldn't fill those gaps and um it just kind of evolved into whenever a bigger project comes along i make up a team kind of a uh, you know a, a, a makeshift team of people that are focused in a particular area like background design and character designing or animation and then uh, uh we bang out the project that way and really, it was just kind of my way of um, making something that was a little more attuned to um, freelancer, because freelancers don't really get <laughs> a whole lot of respect, and you have to you have to do every single part of the process when you're doing animation. You have to do character design and background design and rough animation and all that stuff. And some people are better at things than they are at others. So the idea kind of goes like the things that you're really good at, you finish those quicker. Right. The things that you're not very good at, they take a lot of time. So um, if there are smaller budget projects um, or big budget projects that can be split up between a bunch of people, um, if I just focus on giving the jobs to the people that, um, you know, giving giving a job to someone in their wheelhouse, they'll do it quickly. Um, you know, a decent budget, but, you know, constant work and they don't have to worry at all about finding money um doing doing bills and finding other jobs and that sort of thing everything that freelancers hate so um it's working out pretty well so far what what inspired you to call it rubber onion animation <laughs> of all things because uh, i've been curious <laughs> about that well it, literally it was um i was trying to come up with something that um Nobody had already come up with yet because, you know, I needed a URL, but I didn't just need a URL. I needed, um, you know, Facebook uh, vanity URL. I needed YouTube and, and Twitter and uh, and all of that. So in that process, um, I ended up putting two. <laughs> how do I explain this? I put two uh, halves of two two word phrases that are in animation okay for example uh rubber is from rubber hosing which is kind of like the early disney uh animation um and they actually brought it back in um event adventure time if you've seen that new uh cartoon 
um, where basically the arms look like rubber hoses. Yep. It's pretty, yeah, self-explanatory. Uh, so I took the first word of that, and um, then there's another thing called onion skinning, or onion skin. That's the effect that you get when you lay translucent paper on top of one another, and uh, each successive um, piece of paper looks lighter and lighter and lighter, and that's how you know um, how far back the animations you're you're working on are. So it was rubber onion, and I thought that a good tagline was um, flexible and multi-layered. So I came up with that. I should have Googled it, to be honest, and I should have pronounced it. That was the other thing. I never actually pronounced the name before I just chose the URL. I think it was maybe 2 o'clock in the morning, I thought. All right, uh, sure, rubber onion, why not? And I, <laughs> I, you know, I found that nobody had it. I put it down, and... Um, then when I tried to tell people, you know, so uh, what's what's the business you have? I said, oh, it's rubber onion. You know, what? <laughs> I, I don't know. I always have to say rubber like the material, onion like the vegetable. Well, with with that explanation, though, I can understand, especially with onion skin and doing cells. Are you do you feel that when you describe it to people that when they think of animation now, they associate it more with things along the line of what Pixar is doing versus the traditional hand-drawn animations that we've all grown up with? Do you feel absolutely. that the, the definition has evolved, right? Yeah, absolutely, 100%, especially now when you tell people... Um, well, first of all, when you tell people I do animation, the, the biggest response I get, oh, my nephew does web design. Oh, man. Like, yeah, <laughs> I, I, well, that's really nice, but I do animation. I mean, you know it's different, right? I mean, so... Um, that's kind of the thing. I think it's. I think people mainly associated with Flash. I mean, ninety percent of the jobs that I get, uh, they request that I do it through Flash. And um, you know, on on the few projects that I've been able to not do it in Flash, um, either by purely traditional means or by using a sketch program or um, I mean, you can you can draw and uh, and import and clean them up in in Photoshop and just put it together in a program called After Effects or or Vegas or Premiere, any one of those nonlinear editors, and make an animation out of that. But most people just, they know the buzzwords. They know Flash, they know 3D, they know, you know, that kind of thing. So uh, when they ask for something, usually it's, um, I have to tell them that, you know, we specialize in 2D animation. We can do 3D animation. It's just, it's not the specialty and it costs a little bit more. What is the creative process for, for an animated project for you with regards to, say, somebody requested a 10-minute short or a 5-minute short? What, what's the workflow for that type of a project from storyboarding to if you're doing it hand-drawn? How long does it take you to complete a project like that? Well, the difference between a 10-minute short and a 5-minute short is uh, enormous. Okay. So um, I'll just say that... Uh, on average, uh, when you're just doing animation, when you've passed all the storyboard and everything, it takes about uh, one week to do one minute of uh, decently, you know, decent quality animation. And then uh, the, the higher the quality, the more time you need. Um, but uh, usually it's, uh, let's say, for something that's about um, a minute and a half, because that seems to be the, the, the standard thing that people ask for. Um, a, a minute and a half animation for you know commercial or for game or animation spot that will be around a month from conception to storyboarding, um, you know character design, doing the um, 
the art design, the look. It's most of it is actually back and forth, to be honest. If I didn't have to keep sending things back to the client and having them look at it and go, I kind of like this, and then having to having to work out, having to to squeeze out the information that they're trying to tell me, but they can't articulate it the right way because they don't know the terminology or um, you know they can't express it, but they know what they want. If I didn't have to do that, it would take at least you know probably take about half the time. But, oh, okay. Yeah. So, but there's a lot of back and forth, and that's uh, that's kind of where things sit. The ten minute, you know, the five and ten minutes are actually uh, really good to work on because those are much much bigger budget programs, and when you get bigger budget um, gigs like that. Uh, they, the person that you're dealing with usually has already had some experience with uh, working with an animator, or working with someone else in the creative field at least, and so the the process goes much much quicker. So that's a, that's a lot of fun. On on a minute and a half short, how many people are usually involved when you're when you're putting it together? Uh, on a minute and a half short, it depends. If it's a smaller budget, um, then uh, usually I subcontract that out to about two people. Um, if uh, and, and that's part of the virtual uh, studio thing. So basically, I'm director, and then uh, I have a character designer and an animator. That's uh, usually the best, the best combo for a small budget. And then uh, the bigger it gets, it ends up being somewhere around five to seven. Oh, okay. You know, you have character designers. You have uh, sometimes you have voiceover artists if you need voiceover artists. Um, mainly women because I do I do a lot of voices myself. So, um, but you know, the female voice is a little little difficult to do. I don't have that good of a range. So, um, and then background uh, designing, background artists. Um, uh, most of the rough animation I do myself, and then a couple a couple cleanup artists, which are um the animators that go in and you know finish up what you've done and um kind of filling out from there character design that sort of thing do you feel that with the, like i was saying earlier with with the evolution of animation that hand drawn animation is more appreciated now since it's so rare or do you think that people have just become so accustomed to 3D animation and computer generated animation that they just feel that 2D is an archaic model because me personally I feel that 2D animation is always more fluid looks more it, it looks better and more detailed because you can put so much more into it because you can feel the artist's work on the screen and on the page versus 3D that it's a computer doing most of the rendering yeah there is something that's uh, there's something that's lost in that translation from uh I think the further away you get – the thing that I like about 2D animation is that um, it, it's pretty much from, from the brain to the hand, and, uh, and, and that's the rendering. That's what, you know, that, that's what it is. But then when uh, you have the brain to the hand um, into the puppet um, – but it's not real-time puppet. It's a you know a puppet on a computer, and then you have to layer in all these other uh, bits. And and there's so much more to think about with uh, texturing and lighting, and um, especially for independent shorts themselves. But you know, big budget pictures, they've come a long, long, long way in the way that they've been able to do animation. But I had just had a conversation about this. I never really felt like when I was watching anything in uh, in CGI, no matter how good it was there always felt that there was something a little missing where it didn't really feel like um, like the animation was standing as much on the shoulder of the giants of 2D animation 
that um, somehow the experience didn't transfer. If that makes uh, if that makes any sense, you know, you have you can see big jumps in the beginning Disney cartoons, and then when you get into um, when you get into the 70s and 80s, and then another huge jump when we get to the 90s in the quality of uh, of the animation itself. Not to say anything about the stories, especially when we get to the the late '90s and uh, you know in the early 2000s when it started dying. But um, but the animation, the technical proficiency of the animation itself, the experience I think was able to transfer from one person to the other uh, because it was basically working on apprenticeships. But then when you jump to CGI, there's no experience level there in CGI. It's a brand new frontier, and somehow the experience from all the masters of 2D animation wasn't able to jump that gap well enough. I think they made a huge leap with Tangled. I just saw Tangled, and man, it, uh, the character animation in, in Tangled, they got an enormous amount of emo- um, emotive acting from those, uh, from those characters. And um, I think that, in part, had to do with Glenn Keane, who uh, is a, a master 2D animator who did um, probably most famous for doing The Beast and Beauty and the Beast. And he was um, the supervising animator, a director at one point on Tangled. And um, so you could see the touch being there. Um, I, I think not to be too too roundabout, I'll say, I'll say this because so obviously this is a very weighted topic. Um, we get in these conversations all the time, especially when you're dealing with a 2D animator and a 3D animator when they get in the same room. Of course, this is the conversation that comes up. <laughs> but um, uh, I, I think that, um, well, for example, if you've ever asked a kid uh, when he watches, uh, you know, 3D animation, if you say something like, um, uh, you know, this, this was done, you know, this is 3d and they say, Oh, that's done with computers, right? Mm-hmm. That's, that's the, that's the initial thought. The initial thought is that is done with computers. And the reason is because you can't do CGI without computers. Right. It's a necessary tool. It is a tool, but it is a necessary tool. The, the thing about, uh, 2d animation or traditional animation, um, even though recently they've been using the cap system, which still technically uses, uh, computers. I mean, computer C is that's the first in caps. It stands for computer, um, which is uh, just basically it's uh, still drawing on paper, but then scanning it in and, and coloring and uh, outlining in the computer. That's what that's what caps does. That's what Disney uses. Um, just thought I had to define that. Um, there's still something when you show a kid 2D animation, there is a bit of that magic still held there because they know that it was drawn. You know, if you, if you look at something and you can, you can flip, everybody knows what a flip book is. Right. And, and, it, and it's cool. And it's, there's something magical about that. There's something magical about looking at each individual piece of paper and going, this is, this is a flat, you know, two-dimensional drawing. And when you flip it, it looks like it is a character with emotion and feeling in a three-dimensional world. And there's, um, I think a, a bit of that magic is kind of lost, um, when you think about CGI, not because of anything that really exists, only because of our perceptions. Computers are relatively new, and the pencil is—I um, mean, you can't get any more analog than that, you know. Uh, a friend of mine, she does anime. She fe- she told me that watching CGI, it feels 
soulless. She said, you know, she loves drawing in 2D, <laughs> and she feels that drawing in 2D, you feel that creator's energy resonating through the characters. And it, and in some respects, I agree. I mean, I'm, I'm a huge fan, huge, huge, huge fan of The Lion King. And I think that if you do that film in CGI, you wouldn't get that same energy that was seen and and the vibrance that was seen from from hand drawn animation. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think. Um, did you ever see Persepolis or Persepolis? I don't know how you pronounce it. No, I haven't seen that. Um, I don't know how you pronounce her her name, but it's uh, Mar Marjane Satrip. Something. <laughs> um, anyway, she's the <laughs> that'll work. She's the, she's the cartoonist that uh, that did it, um, and uh, I think she had something really interesting to say about 2D um, when they were trying to make the decision of what to transfer the graphic novel into animation. They were trying to make the decision: what are we going to do a a classic uh, 2D animated or are we going to do CGI? And she was very adamant that they do a 2D um, uh, animated movie and that it had to be done, it had to be animated um, by hand on paper, not by hand into a Cintiq or, you know, a tablet uh, in the computer because she said that uh, when you put the pencil in the hand and and the pencil is is grazing across the piece of paper, um, there is a vibrancy to that line, you know, with something like, uh, you know, the nervous system is pulling that line, the, the, the pulse of the, of the animator is given, you know, uh, very subtle, uh, changes to the line. Uh, I mean, I don't know, it sounds a little new agey and, and hipster, uh, <laughs> to, to talk about that. You know, I don't know if you can sense all that stuff in the line, but, um, I think there is a nostalgia factor that that's how I would probably define it. You know, everybody draws when they're a kid. That's one of the fundamental things you do. And even when you start to learn how to write technically in the beginning, you're just drawing. You don't right. I mean, you're not writing yet. You're just copying the, the letters. So everybody draws and everybody draws with a pencil. Everybody draws with a pencil on paper. Not everybody does CGI modeling. So there is almost a bit of a nostalgia factor there of kind of like, an amazement i've i've drawn i've drawn things before and if you ever drew a cartoon character as a kid then it's even deeper you know you watch a cartoon or you watch any classic animated movie and you know how difficult it is to draw something yeah and you you have this you have this thing ingrained in your brain of years and years and years of drawing on a piece of paper you know what it's like and just imagine someone being able to do that thousands upon thousands of times and make it look like someone is actually living in paper from you know a graphite stroke is uh i i think magic is probably the word to describe it there is a bit of uh, of magic there and um I think they're trying to superficially do that with the uh, with the 3D. To be honest, I mean, you know, not not CGI. I mean, um, 3D glasses. You know, the 3D TV. Yeah, trying to trying to to put that energy into a, a more realistic application. And to some extent, I've I have a love hate relationship with with 3D when it comes to filmmaking. Um, you know, and that's only because Hollywood, like anything else, finds something that's that's decent and bastardizes it to the point where you hate it utterly but <laughs> sometimes you watch movies like we went i i saw um you know transformers the last one in 3d imax oh no and it was oh, no. 
Uh, wait, I don't even know what they're up to now. They're up to three, right? <laughs> yeah, they're up to three, and it was Ugh. it was a it was amazing only because the 3D wasn't the gimmicky. I'm gonna throw this missile at the screen 3D. It was it was done in such a way that when you saw it in such a huge screen, you said to yourself, "Wow, that's pretty amazing." But then you take something like Piranha 3D, which clearly <laughs> which clearly is a is is done for for shits and giggles, and you realize. I really hate this. So <laughs> it, it's 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 funny that you apply that logic to 3D only because when you see an animated film, one of my one of the writers for the site, he took his little girl to see The Lion King in 3D, uh-huh. and I asked him, I'm like, what'd you think? And he goes, dude, it, it was amazing because the it's it's all about the application. I think that when it comes to 3D as a whole, whether it's animated or live action or sci-fi or CGI, it it's the application and the use of it that matters. I think that with something like Clash of the Titans, which was turned 3D post-production, it just looked god-awful. <laughs> yeah, 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 no, f- for sure. I think um, it, it definitely if you have that in mind for a, for a gimmick, which they obviously had that in mind for Clash of the Titans, it was this uh, this afterthought. Uh, we, you know, they probably looked at the at the rough cut and went, okay, this sucks a little bit. We need <laughs> we, we need something that's going to bring in people, or at least something that's going to let us uh, uh, keep the ticket sales high. But um, I, I thought Avatar was uh, was very effective in the the use of 3D, mostly because of um, um, I've heard other people call it different things. I, I call it the zoo factor when they're playing with depth rather than negative. Um, the, the the negative zone is um, when it comes out to you, when like a right. you know, spear comes out in front of your face. I mean, when it breaks that wall, okay, it makes it makes you jump a little bit, but I mean, everybody knows that. It's there's nothing gonna happen. Um, so, in the initial, you might jump, go whoa, something just flew by my head, but then you feel kind of stupid. You're like, okay, well, <laughs> but that's you know, it's clearly that didn't happen. But in Avatar, they they played with depth more than anything. Um, so it made it look more like you're watching the tigers uh, walk back and forth through the glass in the zoo. Do you know what I right. mean? That kind of thing. Yeah, they use where, depth perception as yeah. opposed to anything else. Exactly. The the depth. And I, I think that it's almost like uh, what Disney did with the multiplane camera um, effect in uh, in Bambi, where they had this two... It was uh, over the course of two floors. It's like 20, 20 feet long. Um, by taking... By taking these, um, these images, these big, long paintings, and moving the ones that are farther away from the camera slower than the ones that are closer to the camera. The ones that are closer to the camera move faster than the ones that are farther away from the camera. Um, they had to set this thing up over 20 feet to get the correct uh, depth. But it got this feeling of 3D, um, almost like you were in this this depth, this depth of field, almost like you were in uh, the forest. If you remember the opening shot of Bambi, I don't know how fresh that is in your mind, but... Um, I have more a, visuals when I usually have more visuals when Thumper was involved, just because he was <laughs> one of my my favorite characters as a kid in that film. But I definitely remember when they opened up and they showed the forest. It was such a huge canvassing shot that I definitely yeah. understand what you're saying, and that's that's something that isn't used often to set the stage anymore. Now you just open right. it up with the credits and the movie starts. Like to open it up in such a wide expanse was was definitely ahead of its time. It's funny how they do that sometimes with um, with movies that that break the ground, 
um, because I think you need such a great idea to foster an environment that makes you create an entirely new set of technology in order to make this great idea happen that uh, everything after that doesn't have that spark of inspiration. I, I always come back to Jurassic Park. Every single dinosaur I have ever seen from there on out that's done in CG looks like crap. Yep, it's the it measuring stick. Yes, it looks terrible con compared to Jurassic Park. Nothing. I looked okay, King Kong, King Kong was amazing. But if you want to you want to put spade to spade here, those dinosaurs did not look as quote unquote real as the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park 1 because it, it, the uh, the Jurassic Parks that followed also did not look um as good as uh, the the T-Rex in particular. That T-Rex scene uh, is one of the most amazing things I've ever seen. Uh, you you can actually pick out where it's uh, where it's practical because um, you know it, it looks so good, and they, they had to do that for the uh, for the close-ups. But um, and when it's moving a little more herky jerky, you know that it's a practical animatronic thing. But uh, there are some parts about that movie that the texturing, the the movement, uh, the way that they played with the environment and the lighting, everything fits so well and i cannot figure out exactly why they haven't been able to replicate that again yeah because i mean in, in that particular film it was a healthy mix of cgi and robotics and i think that the robotics helped the cgi look better only because you were building you were building the cgi on a, on a model you had something to build it on it's almost like when you throw clay over a skeleton and you know you mold from there i think that's that's where it allowed this stuff to look natural and i figured when i saw the later movies and even king kong like you were saying i think that they just figured all right we can do all this in cgi we don't need any robotics to do this right and it's like you need that you need a skeleton to make it seem more natural yeah see i think what they're trying to do now is they're trying to um use um the the big thing right now and the big conversation that's happening in every single animation conversation I've been in in the last at least four months, but probably more than that, has been about motion capture. And I think that's what they're thinking right now. It saves it saves time, obviously. Um, and, uh, and, and it kind of um, it lays the groundwork mm -hmm. and uh, makes things a little bit more uh, move a little bit more um, lifelike. But, you know, the problem is I mean, they do have to plus everything. Uh, a buddy of mine, um, uh, Dave Johnson, was just talking about this, saying that every single – everything that you get, you have to plus things. Um, and plusing just means if you were to – if you've ever seen a rotoscope – do you know what rotoscoping is? I don't know if uh, – maybe I should define that. Rotoscoping is when you take live-action video and you trace over it. Right. Um, so that's rotoscoping. Now, they use that a lot in uh, early Disney films. And you can see, for instance, um, uh, Snow White. There are parts, not all of Snow White, but there are parts of Snow White that you can clearly pick out are rotoscope because it almost looks like she's floating. Gravity just does not look the same. You, you need to plus gravity in 2D animation. It does not work. It, everybody looks like they're floating, weird, ghost-like creatures. It doesn't look like there's any impact of their foot on the ground whatsoever. Because what you feel is more intense than what it actually looks like. Now, if you look at someone that's walking down the street, you see that they are putting their foot on the ground. You see that they're running. You see that they're you know, jumping or doing whatever they're doing. You know what that feels like. 
So in your brain, it's almost like your brain is plussing it a little bit because you know what it feels like for someone to, you know, to, uh, uh, to, to make these actions happen. But there is a bit of that, um, uh, that suspense of disbelief or suspense of belief. I've always kind of thought it was, but, um, in any case, where it's this fantasy world, you know that it's drawn. You know that it's in 2D. So when you see someone, even though the foot is coming down and contacting the ground, exactly the same speed, um, the outline is exactly the same as a videotape. It still looks like the person's floating because you know that that's not a person. So your brain is not plussing it. Yeah, and you're not adding. You're not adading any personal experience. yeah there's no empathy there's no empathy to it exactly and that's why in animation you need to push things a little bit farther and it happens in everything in every single thing it, the voice acting if i am not this animation like if we were to animate this conversation it wouldn't be that interesting what i would need to do is i would need to speak a little bit louder and i would need to speak with a higher tone maybe go up and down a little bit more and make it a little bit more interesting to listen to a little <laughs> bit more dynamic a little bit more energy with it and that would be interesting pop that point so that i can point my finger someplace or stomp my foot down you know it's that energy that you need to put behind it that that you can feed off of as an animator and when pr- someone puts their foot down the frame right before they actually put their foot down, that that toe needs to be extended pretty much all the way up so that there's a big slam when that foot goes down. Nobody notices it because you just feel it. You feel that slam. It feels right. It feels like it makes sense. Um, it, it, just things like that. So when you go into motion capture, for instance, you're dealing with essentially the computer is rotoscoping the performance, right? It's taking exactly what's happening. Um, and this happens all the time in games, uh, early games, not so much now because they're doing amazing stuff in motion capture in games. Oh, yeah. But, uh, the, you know, I mean, you probably know what I'm talking about. The early motion capture, mostly, um, uh, it, it's mostly things like, um, um, you know, military, uh, paramilitary games, that sort of thing, where people are running around and crouching. Yep. It just take too long to animate that. You can tell. You look at them, and you can tell it looks like they're kind of floating over the ground, just a little bit. You yeah, can there's tell, no you know boot to ground. Exactly. You can tell. You you know that that feels just a little bit wrong. But now you look at some things, and you look at Gears of War, for instance, and the person's running along the ground. You hear that. And you you hear it, but you feel it, you know. And and I could I could take those two things side by side, and I could show you the frame right before that person puts his foot down on the ground. Is it's stretched a little bit? The heel has contact before the foot does. So uh, that's another big thing, by the way. If the foot does not contact whatsoever, and then there's just another frame afterward where the foot comes down, it just doesn't feel like there's much of an impact. You need to have that heel hit first and then slap that foot down and then bend the knee and make it feel like there's an impact going on and i'm they don't have that in in motion capture you know it, you need to plus everything that happens so uh you know andy circus is talking about uh my favorite quote was painting over painting over the the what do you call it the the well painting over the reference pixel by pixel that is the most idiotic 
I mean, it's clear he has no idea what the process is. No. I, I don't know how I don't know how he can work in this uh, industry and not know exactly what goes into the process of plussing his own. Didn't he um, use that for capture? Didn't he use that for plant to describe his performance in Planet of the Apes, or was he using that to describe his performance in Gollum? Because pretty much everything he was talking, it was directly related to Planet of the Apes. Because in the last uh, few months since it's come out, there's been a big push. And who did it? Sony, I think. Yeah, to get uh, him the Oscar. To get him, uh, yeah, to to get him an, uh, an Oscar, or to get to be the one to push the boundary into getting an Oscar for motion capture um, actors, for instance. Well, how do you? Well, since we're on the subject, how do you feel about that? <laughs> um, I have my feelings. Um, I know, I know that motion capture um, actors are, well, a lot of them are fantastic, uh, and and just like. I wouldn't want to put down anybody's performance or anybody's art in any way. I don't want to minimize what they do. But in a way, they're kind of minimizing what the animators do behind them. Uh, I've, I've said that I would be in favor of actually um, uh, a character winning the Oscar. So, for instance, like a, uh, you know, a visual effects team wins. A sound editing team wins. Um, when there's a, when there's a a category where a bunch of people win an Oscar, I think that it would be conceivable to have something like, um, you know, best supporting actor digitally enhanced or something like that. Uh, so someone like Gollum, for instance, or someone like King Kong, who the entire movie was based around, he's a character in its own right. Right. Um, from what I know of his work on King Kong, they had to throw almost all of it out. Because uh, it just didn't work. They set him up. They did all the stuff. He did. He did great work, but they just couldn't use it. The proportions weren't weren't good enough. They hadn't set it up, and they couldn't go back and re-record the beginning stuff. Now I don't know this personally because obviously I didn't work on it. But um, from what I've heard, uh, that was the situation. Other things, I guess their motion capture uh, was better in Planet of the Apes, so they got to use more of it. Well, but, it was a smaller monkey, you know. I mean, right, that, exactly. like that's part of it too. It's like, how do you expect a motion capture uh, a, a, a human being and it, be able to emote what that human being is doing to a you know a one hundred story ape? Right. It's, exactly. It's impossible. It, it's it's definitely going to be tough. I mean, that's one of the things I've always felt with you know me being a comic fan with something like the Incredible Hulk, getting the Incredible Hulk perfectly is a science in and of itself to get him be, to be able to emote other feelings besides anger. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think, uh, I think really, it, I mean, in my opinion to do someone like, uh, like the incredible Hulk, I, I feel that you would need to do, um, I mean, they did great things with, uh, Captain America in that, uh, they, use the body double to get the size to right. get you know what he looks like but that that is his body as uh as steve rogers i i posted this um they had something on uh, an interview on uh, animation world network i think uh with the visual effects team it was fascinating um what they had done is they basically go by and they do 2d manipulation of the body of uh, was his name Chris Evans, I believe? Yes. Uh, so as Steve Rogers, young Steve Rogers, before he became you know Captain America, you know, super soldier enhanced, um, when he was really skinny with that you know spoon chest, 
what they did is they took that footage and they actually shrunk it down almost exactly like you would do in Photoshop. I mean, you can alter someone's body just by shrinking down things and replacing some of the background and do that 2D. But they did that frame by frame by frame. Right. They were they, cutting out pieces of the background because I remember that conversation. Yeah, exactly. That's what they were doing. And it was not 3D. It was not a body double that they put a head on. That's the most impressive part. They actually took his performance and they shrunk it down. They shrunk his face down. They shrunk his neck down, his body. Uh, they changed the lighting. They made him paler. I mean they did all of this stuff, but they did it with 2D manipulation, uh, meaning they did it with computers, but they did it uh, manipulating the 2D flat image like you would on a, on a picture rather than wireframing it around and, uh, and, and squeezing it or at, or or – replacing uh, the head like they did in Black Swan, for instance. Um, well, they use that effect in Benjamin Button to an extent also, right? I, You know, I'm not entirely sure on what they did with Benjamin Button, actually. I, I did hear some of what they did with the visual effects. Uh, I don't remember hearing that about the, the 2D manipulation, but I think if they were able, if they were able to get someone, I mean, you know, let's be honest, someone like... Uh, Brock Lesnar, right, who has often been compared to uh, to the Hulk. I mean, you could take Alistair Overeem for, you know, just this gigantic hulking figure, and um, he could be basically your 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 body double uh, uh, reference that you could 2D manipulate. It doesn't mean that you're going to get that expression out of the face, because, you know, they're not like nope. actors, but I believe that there would be a possibility of you doing some sort of combination of, of the person who's playing Bruce Wayne could play the could play the character of the Hulk and then um, have a body double stand in that has, you know, a large stature and um, use perspective like they did in Elf for crying out loud. I mean, they've done these things forever. Um, there was absolutely no CGI enhancement in Elf, the Christmas movie. Yeah, they one actually, of my one they, of my favorites. Smiling is my favorite. I mean, right. <laughs> <laughs> singing is the best. We always sing. Um they did a great job or John Favreau did a great job with perspective, you know, forcing perspective and making it look like Will Ferrell's character of, of the human elf was taller and bigger than everybody else. I mean, he's a big guy in his own right, but he's not that big. Um, and I think if you played with perspective and you had a body double stand in that had, you know, proportions that were of reasonable extent to uh, the Hulk and uh, you did that 2D manipulation like they did in uh, for Captain America, I believe that you could come up with something that looked better than what they've done in either one of the the um, uh, Ang Lee's Hulk or uh, oh shoot, who directed the second Hulk? Uh, the Incredible Hulk. Shit, I don't remember. Damn, I know I know Norton was in it, but I don't remember who directed it. But right. I, Ang Lee's Hulk actually they used a uh, they captured. They motion captured a competitive bodybuilder called Lee Priest. He is uh five six. He is ginormous for, for you know, he's the same height as I am, but he is right. a massive human being and they actually mo capped him to do the body of the Hulk in the first one. Oh, but, in the first one, yeah, yeah. But then in the second one they went with more of a of you know, they wanted to make him the the the, the perfect human specimen just magnified a, a lot versus in the in Ang Lee's Hulk they wanted to make him more kind of Jekyll and Hyde-ish right I like what they did in in Ang Lee's version to be honest a lot of people uh really hated it but um um I feel the same way about that one that I feel about Superman Returns in that 
I'm not claiming it's a perfect movie in any means, but I did enjoy them. I, you know, maybe I'm, I'm kind of a, I'm a, I'm a sensitive guy at heart, so I, I don't mind stuff like that. But um, I think there were a lot of people that went to the Hulk to want to see Hulk smash. That was the first group, and then the second group was the villain was not something that it, it just didn't work. They wanted right. a villain that that was going to, you know, that he was going to fight. <laughs> well, yeah, you want that come to blows with. Right, you want a character that. And that's the problem with with certain with certain characters. It's that you want somebody that can stand toe to toe. When you talk about the Hulk, it's you want to see the Hulk break stuff. You want to see the Hulk fight, you know, right. hundred foot tall monsters. Like that's what you want. I think that when people were met with something more cerebral and the fact that it all stemmed from daddy issues, while it was a, a deeper story, it was lost on the on the on the casual viewer. Right. I actually feel like um, they might have done a disservice going with the daddy issue thing, because if you're if you're thinking about connecting with an audience, um, I, I'm not saying that there's not a lot of people with daddy issues. I'm just saying that to the extent that we're talking about feeling like the Incredible Hulk, um, I it think, doesn't work. I think more people may have connected with um, with, with an idea of um, of just, you know, straight being an outcast, having anger problems. Um, you know, uh, doing doing things that you regret. I mean, I, I think those are things that people can connect with, and you don't need to make it that. You don't need to make it intellectual to do something that people can find. So they've already paid their money. They want to find something in the movie that they can connect with, whether they know it or not. You go to see some stupid movie. You can go and you can laugh at it, but if you give them something to actually uh, that they're going to find something of themselves in as an as an audience member they're going to do it you know so it's like if you go into a movie with low expectations you don't come out of it no matter what the movie is going ah that was a crappy movie and then you just laugh at it if you go in there and they actually do a pretty good job of making you feel like you know you're you're in this world and and uh and it's fun it's a it's a nice ride audience members are very very forgiving that way you know, it's they want to be entertained. That's the whole move. The whole point of going to the movie. Well, I'm, I won't say the whole point because some people go to the movies to be jackasses. But um, <laughs> <laughs> that's a that's a uh, that's a different thing and not a uniquely uh, New York thing. I, I found out in, in uh, L.A. Oh, OK. Yeah. Well, that's that's good to know. That's one reason why I don't like going to the movies, because most times I'd say 75 percent of the time I usually have words with someone. Because yeah, it's just it's just ridiculous. I mean, it's just it gets to the point where you just feel like, why? Why? I mean, why am I paying to go to this place right. uh, to watch uh, some guy try to uh, um, you know visually display exactly how much testosterone he has um, to every person in the audience, and or how funny that they think they are? Because um, However funny you think you are, you know, knock that down by at least sixty percent. That's how funny you actually are. Oh, it's yeah. kind of like listen to your voice on the on, <laughs> on the radio or listen to your voice recorded. That's what I always think about it. Oh, Any I agree. joke you think is funny, just imagine what the difference is between what you think you sound like and what you actually sound like. That's probably what it's like. The best analogy I've always found is just because you're funny doesn't mean you you're going to be a stand-up comedian. No, exactly, exactly. You can be the funny guy in a group, but you're not going to be able to go up to you know stand-up comedy is an art. It, I'm, it's, it is a performance art, but it's an art. You know, it, you, you, there's there are things behind it. Being the funny guy in the group, you just have to be, you know, 
I don't know, quicker, I guess, uh, more, <laughs> more, uh, more willing to make a fool out of yourself. Cause people, people like that, but you know, well on the, on the subject of stand up comedy, and I'm actually glad we went into this because we all, you know, we all draw inspiration from some stuff. I mean, I draw inspiration from stand up comedy, from, from ONA, from Opie and Anthony, a little bit from Stern. I draw inspiration for what I do from different people. You as an artist, especially as far as you've come along now, where where have you drawn inspiration from in terms of creativity, art design? Like, what are what are some animators and artists that have inspired you to to tighten up your craft or that have given you motivation to just be better? Well, uh, my my motivation as uh as an artist, I guess would, um, it, it first starts as a storyteller. That's why I have to, I have to say that because a lot of my inspiration doesn't actually come from animators. Um, I mean, the technical skill a lot of times comes from animators, but most of the, most of the things that I really get inspired by are, um, are other, other fields, uh, other types of storytellers, whether it be, uh, writers. And, um, I do consider especially stuff that's going on right now, in comic books some of the best writing is happening in uh, in comic books i mean you know, it's a, it's uh, it's really really booming uh, it, you know if even if you look at the scripts that are coming out which is kind of amazing if you look at scripts that ha- that would that were uh, uh, that were handed to the artist even 20 years ago and you look at the scripts now they are fleshed out now they are genuine scripts and um and they're they're all fantastic and the the linear storytelling and non-linear storytelling and it's just uh it's great they're doing great things with that medium it doesn't necessarily transfer to mine but i don't think inspiration needs to transfer i think you just get inspiration you you like seeing what people have done and you get inspiration knowing that that is looks like a true expression of who they are and and what they've wanted to do i think the stuff that has probably the biggest impact on me honestly is uh early horror movies monster movies nice uh, ray harry Studios. ray harryhausen or oh or, yeah or... harry oh for sure Harryhausen. <laughs> yeah you know if you're talking about animation in particular yeah harryhausen has to be because i mean he was the he was groundbreaking in such a huge way and yep. he stood out among the group for such a long time and and just held up that fort i mean nobody touched him and um you know the uh, uh, is it the beast? There's the monster, the the beast of twenty thousand fathoms. I think that's the name of the movie. Right. Just amazing. You know, everybody points to things like Clash of the Titans, but man, he just some some of that early stuff he just knocks out of the park. And I believe that was the last full feature he worked on. I can't I can't remember. Or be entirely sure. Sometimes um, <laughs> sometimes that kind of history uh, evades me. I have it in there somewhere in my brain. Valley of Guangi was a favorite of mine. Oh yeah, yeah for sure. And, you know that was one thing that I really liked about Netflix is that um, uh, before they, they before they went into the streaming, they actually had a larger selection of DVDs. And the one thing that they had is a huge selection of early DVDs. And I don't know if they just cut back on them or what did they do? Break them? I don't know what they <laughs> like. They just break them and burn them out of spite because they had them. And uh, and now they don't, and I don't. It it uh, it bothers me, but um, yeah, they had all sorts of things. They had uh, uh, Phantom of the Opera, Lon Chaney, Lon Chaney Senior, not Lon Chaney Junior. You know, like the, uh, I mean, he's another one makeup specialist. He was another pioneer of 
of uh, early special effects movie makeup, um, and his work on Phantom of the Opera was just – it's amazing. I mean really legendary. If you talk about legendaries, legendary. They talk about him taking uh, – you know, uh, what is it? Is fish hooks? Putting yep. it under his eyelids and, <laughs> and having um, uh, uh, you know, a fishing line that went back up into his scalp where he, actually, where he taped or glued it under the fold of his hair of his scalp or something, something along those lines to get his eyes that wide all the time. Oh, that's, that's commitment. Insane. Yeah, it's commitment, right? And then his his son, Lon Chaney Jr., who was this, you know, towering character, ended up playing uh, the Wolfman. And he, he also I mean, they all ended up switching parts. I think uh, I think uh, both he and Bela Lugosi played Wolfman, um, Dracula and Frankenstein. I'm pretty sure because Bela Lugosi was the original Wolfman. He was the one that actually bit Lon Chaney Jr. Right. And uh and Lon Chaney Jr., I believe, played Frankenstein in Abbott Costello. Yes. Frankenstein, be- right? Yeah. Yes, he did. Yeah. It just, you know, early stuff like that really, really sets the mark for me sometimes when I when I watch um, some of those early movies and Westerns. I have I have a big, um, big penchant for Westerns. I don't wow. watch too much of okay. them anymore because um, I usually watch them with my dad and, um, you know, I haven't been been home to, to watch them all that much. But um, that's where a lot of my cin- cinematography knowledge comes from. It's Westerns. Oh, nice. Are you a uh, do you like the spaghetti Westerns or do you like the more story plot driven Westerns? I like the story plot driven Westerns, but you, I mean, you have to give it up to spaghetti Westerns as being again cinematography and and staging they i mean they did uh it, some of the best staging and some things that we use now like that classic um you know with the eyes uh, uh man i just explained this to somebody who was who wanted to know more about storyboarding um uh i'll try to make this as quick as possible but <laughs> when you have when you have two two guys that are facing off with one another um and uh you know good guys on the left bad guys on the right right and uh bad guy means he's facing uh left just in for point of reference usually you put the bad guy on the right because he's usually facing left and that's antagonistic because we read left to right i never knew that (laughs) yeah we read left to right so anything that's going from right to left feels like you're swimming upstream you know they did that in lawrence of arabia anytime the plot was progressing or things were easy and he was going to do something positive. He was riding through the desert from left to right. But when he had to go, when he was going into something that was really difficult and, and, um, um, perilous, he was riding from right to left across the screen. You know, now I'm going to start watching for that. See what you oh, did? Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, exactly. You should, but you know, you have a uh, good guy on the left, bad guy on the right. And, um, they're flat staged, you know, just perfectly right, uh, on extreme ends of the uh, spectrum. And then we go to an over the shoulder shot where you're looking at the good guy who's on the left far away and over the shoulder, blurry, dark shot of the bad guy on the right. And, um, and then it goes to the other one where now you're seeing the good guy over the shoulder dark uh and then the bad guy's far away and it keeps going back and forth zooming in on their faces getting a little closer a little closer but each as it zooms in closer to their faces their staging of left to right ends up getting closer and closer to the center and then the last shot is one where it's just dead sent just on their eyes their eyes are taking up the entire frame and they just squint 
you know, the, the good guy squints or maybe the bad guy squints. And then we go back and we see the good guy squinting. And um, you're not supposed to do that in staging. You're not supposed to take a character, um, anything really, <clears throat> and then cut to another scene and have something sitting in its exact same spot that is supposed to be different than itself. You can't do that because it confuses people. It makes it look like it's transporting from one to the other. But this was a way to make it seem like they're getting closer to closer, closer together until they're right on top of each other. Just increases the tension, makes it feel like even though they're farther and farther apart, they're zoning in on the person and they're polar opposites of one another. And then the next shot you see is we're back to the original really far shot away and one of them falls down. So, you know, things like that. And I mean, it was groundbreaking. Spaghetti Westerns were groundbreaking. They took the best of what was going on in European cinema and pulled it together with the best that was going on in um, in, in the, the the linear editing or nonlinear editing, linear storytelling of the Western cinema, and and came up with something amazing. Well, hell, I would never have thought that you would have given me an answer that where your inspiration came from westerns. I was expecting, uh, you know, stuff from Hanna Barbera. Chuck Jones, Tex Avery. Oh, for sure. I mean, I can go on about that stuff. But, <laughs> oh no, of course. But but that was that was a, a very very different sort of answer than I expected. So that's cool, man. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, tech. I mean, from a technical standpoint and from an acting uh, standpoint, I mean, well, you know, the, the bottom line is we really don't have very many. Um, you know, uh, superstar directors in animation. You know, we have. Like Brad Bird, for instance, who's making the jump now, uh, directing uh, Mission Impossible 4, I think it is. Um, who And he directed Iron Giant, Ratatouille, The Incredibles. I mean, he's basically our superstar uh, director that we have. But for every superstar director that you have in animation, you have like 10 of them in live action. This so if you're true. really talking about you know, inspiration and honing your craft, um, especially with staging and acting and, um, uh, and, and performance, you know, you, you have a much deeper pool to choose a deeper pool to choose from a deeper, a deeper talent pool, a deeper talent pool. Yeah. Yeah. Deeper. Sure. Sure. That works. I'm trying to figure out an analogy, but you have a, a larger selection to choose from. Let's just say that, um, in live action, they do of, of animation, um, in 2D animation. I mean, that it kind of goes back to what I was saying about the experience. You know, the experience in 2D animation hasn't really transferred over into uh, 3D. Well, that it took a long time for the experience in live action to properly transfer into uh, into 2D animation. I mean, they they did great strides in like 10 years, which is amazing. I mean, the 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 stuff that the early, the nine old men of Disney were doing was fantastic. And, you know, you're talking about Tex Avery, for instance. I mean, he revolutionized uh, TV animation. If it wasn't for Tex Avery, I'm not sure that TV animation would really be where it is right now. Because uh, what he did with um, something like Tom and Jerry, if you look at early Tom and Jerry cartoons, uh, Tom had really furry hair i mean it was um spikes all over his hair and there were whiskers uh, you know everywhere and um and jerry's design was uh he had a smaller head he was um that's right he, just, he looks very smooth versus yes. tom's uh he look tom looked homeless that's what yes, i was, he had he the did. homeless look he, looked, he had like that real dirty alley cat look and then as the animation progressed i and i still watch those cartoons i i realized how clean 
they started making Tom look, and you can start seeing, you know, the white of his hair forming a nice clean little point on his tail and things yeah. like that. So, the, the, you know, that was Tex Avery. That when, when you're saying over time, it wasn't over time. It was as soon as Tex Avery came on board, really? he changed it. It was just him. Holy he came shit. in and said, he came in and said, look. If you're going to animate this way, uh, th- this is ridiculous. You just hint to the fact that he has fur. We know he's a cat, right? So we'll have some uh, we'll have some some tufts of hair on on top of his head, just uh, you know one or two, right? Or, or I'm sorry, like uh, two or three, and then uh, we'll put the um, you don't need to have any tufts on his wrists, for instance, because we change color. So as you're changing color from gray to white, just make it two little angular points down there because it makes it look like okay well then that's kind of fur on the elbow you had two little points you know you just had these very select spots that had a couple little points of hair that were coming out um and then the rest of the body was totally smooth so you're just hinting at the idea of hair and what that did for animation was it cut the amount of time that they had to spend on keeping track of every little point of hair along the way um, to smoothly transition because you just couldn't do that. I mean, one or two little points you can you can track. Okay, this one is going to move over here at this time, and so the in between is going to be in this point. And um, it's really hard to explain over the radio. But um, but when Tex Avery came in, he just smoothed all that out and just cleaned up the design and increased the appeal of. Uh, Jerry, which made him more baby-like, you know, increased yep. increased the the size of the head. Yeah, he had um, a little he had a little body and a big head, and big right, ears. Exactly. Yep, and and little body, but increased the uh, the pot belly, shortened shortened his legs, increased the length of his arms. You know, just um, things like that that just increased the appeal. You know, by just lengthening the arms a little bit, you were able to play much better, make this great silhouette negative area. You know. Um, Small arms are really difficult to create negative area because they can't bend around and create um, uh, a circle. I I can't explain everything that happens in here, so your viewers <laughs> are just going to have to Google negative area. But um, <laughs> but things like that. I mean, that was you know. So Tex Avery obviously is a he's a big influence. I think Chuck Jones is probably the biggest influence on my uh, timing timing uh, for for comedy and animation that's he chuck, uh, chuck jones, jones was awesome all his uh the any any work with bugs bunny he did was phenomenal and that's one thing oh, yeah. the one reason why i bring this up also is because when those animators were were putting out stuff like tom and jerry uh, bugs bunny there were a lot of subjects that were touched upon that were not touched upon now because we've become far more sensitive but what I wanted to ask you with regards to animation is do you feel that when it's in relation to ethnicity and even in into subject matter in general that the tone of the animation changes? For instance, you can see Who Framed Roger Rabbit, very whimsical but very fun. Then you watch something like Cool World that was a little darker. You see what I'm saying? And then you go into something like The Boondocks which is more more urban and it's tailored towards that demographic you want to get have you ever do you feel that animation is tailored more towards the demographic as opposed to the story now uh yes and no i think um i mean i think a lot of the stuff is tailored uh to to demographic i mean everything is tailored to demographic i think that's 
not not uh, the the victim is not just animation. I think it's kind of across the board in everything, including games, including comic books, um, where everything is you know the comic book proportions are bumped up just a little bit because they know that their kids are you know the the big bulk of the new readers are going to be uh young boys that their parents are just allowing them to shop and um that's around puberty age so let's uh you know let's bump up some some uh, heroic proportions in men and women and you know you hear you know bendis talking about that a lot and he's like you know whatever you know it's <laughs> i don't i don't care it's uh we have our notes just like tv has their notes and and movies have their notes and i'm sure that novels have their notes as well i think the more popular and the more money something makes the more notes you have from uh from producers to you know focus on a demographic i would say that uh that it's more a product of the time that we're living in that okay. um than than the animation itself um because uh, the other thing is also in the field you know the field of animation is much much bigger now than it used to be and i was just talking you want to talk about someone else who uh is really inspiring to me um uh, animator working now uh, is ryan woodward and he uh did an animated short uh called thought of you which uh is not at all what you would expect i mean you know i do kind of you know funny stuff i guess but uh, it was a really, uh, really touching, pensive, um, thought-provoking kind of uh, animation that was done around modern interpretive dance uh, with 2D special effects, if I can explain it that way. But it was all staged just one way, you know, perfectly flat, and uh, and it was amazing. But um, talking with him, he was talking about when people, when he got into it. He just got his first job in animation just by having a few figure drawings and giving them just they just want to know that you could draw and then you would get hired to a studio and then you would go along and you just uh, uh, you would work. So the people that he was working with were much edgier, you know, the, the personalities that would actually go after a job like that were were either doing it because they loved it, because they wanted it or because um, that was the only place that they could go to to do their craft. It was kind of, it was almost like a uh, as punk rock as you can be in animation, I guess, if that makes sense. You know, it's not a not a very easy working process. People had very conflicting personalities, even though what they came up with were you know, these kind of kids cartoons. But Chuck Jones says it all the time. I didn't make cartoons for kids. I made cartoons that I would like, and there were a lot of jokes in there that a lot of people don't get now. Mm-hmm. but um but that kids would not get back then they were they were jokes for adults bugs bunny eating the carrot for instance was um was i forget the movie but i think it was humphrey humphrey bogart was uh, was it humphrey bogart shoot now i'm mixing up my history but anyway there was a famous actor at the time who was um in a scene and he was eating a carrot um and it was just a play on that. It was the first time you saw Bugs eating a carrot. It was just supposed to mimic that scene of a, a very popular scene at the time. Ah, and okay. It, that, that's all it was. But then, you know, then it turns out that – and I worked at a pet shop. I actually learned that at a pet shop. That's why I'm a little fuzzy on the details because I wasn't even an, in animation at the time. I was in high school. But the reason I had to learn that is because uh, I would have to explain to the kids that, you know, you cannot just feed rabbits – carrots 
they, they will eat them, but they don't eat carrots. They have other things that they eat. So really, the only reason he had Bugs eating a carrot is because of that one scene. And now it has become so a part of Bugs Bunny's folklore that they think that they put Bugs eating a carrot because that's what Bugs, that's what bunnies do. They eat carrots, but that's not true. Um, I meandered a little bit through that, but <laughs> uh, no, I, I, I uh, you actually brought a, a couple of things to light, and the the whole reason why I asked, I asked about demographics and and tailoring animation is because as someone who's watched tons of animation growing up, I have you know I have certain ones that are my favorites, and I remember one of my favorites, which I actually have in my favorites on YouTube, is Magical Maestro, which um, uh-huh. had the uh, the conductor conducting with um and there was an interruption by a rabbit and the problem with the with the cartoon was that they touched on a lot of racial stuff like there was a part where a symbol fell on the conductor's head and he became asian and um he was doing like the polynesian dancing and then they stopped playing it on the on the cartoon network and i've always I, i used to always wonder why until i got older and i did my homework and i realized that it was just because of the racial overtone same thing with bugs bunny and blackface but you see a, a movie or an animated or an animated film like Bebe's Kids, that there's you know a ton of racial stuff in that, but that's still widely recognized. Same thing with um you know with the Boondocks. That's why I asked if there were certain if there was certain criteria with regards to demographic because some of these older cartoons like you said that touched on older humor. They just seem to pull them because they don't want people to get offended. But you watch something like the Boondocks, and that that stuff is front and center. Well, they did that a lot. I mean, they did that even with Tom and Jerry. We were talking about Tom and Jerry earlier. Um, it was um, Mammy. Yeah. Uh, yep. That was uh, that was the owner of of, uh, of Tom. Uh, I remember that. Um, and um, you know they they cut her out. And I honestly I think it's actually because of the time. I think. Uh, not saying that that is not saying that they did that because they you know were racial bigots or something but i think when you think back in time and you go oh at that time there was um, a lot of honest racial bigotry at the time so it's easier to assume that the things that they're doing are not out of um not out of humor or not out of um social commentary other than Oh, this is just what 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 happens in blackface is funny or um, or, you know, having a character. I mean, you know, Mammy, uh, Mammy's a, a character in, in Gone with the Wind. As far as I know, they chose uh, they chose Mammy specifically designed after the character of of Gone with the Wind because of, you know, how how strong and aggressive she was with uh, all the decisions and everything that happened in the house. You know, everything had to be done you know, really, really particularly. And they thought that that would be funny uh, with Tom, that Tom was going to be basically like Scarlett O'Hara and everything that Tom tried to do, you know, Mammy would make sure that, no, Tom, you're an indoor cat. You can't, you know, be be doing that. Or um, you need to, you need to do your chores, a.k.a. you need to, you know, chase after this, uh, this mouse. So I don't think anything, I don't believe that there was any real uh, racial bigotry behind that. But they take it out because perception now is that back then, oh, yeah, back then. It's, uh, you know, there were a lot of racists back then. So do you know, do you, am I making, I don't know if I can articulate no, no, no. this you, well enough. But, no, you're, 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 making, yeah. you're making a good point because the people will look at it and they'll automatically assume that just because 
X X racial tension was high at the time, it's translating into the medium, which I've always felt was false. I think that it was just the fact that it was something that was humorous. I mean, seeing seeing in, in Magical Maestro that that example and and the guy the symbol landing on his head and it becoming a rice hat and him being Asian, it's just like, well, that's kind of how things are. Right. Well, <laughs> you know, that is that is uh, that's a good example too because um, stuff like that and and way more gets done on Family Guy all the time. Oh yeah. And and so that's a, a perfect example. I think you look at something like Family Guy. And it's just assumed that, well, you know, he, he's not he's not a racist or he's not a bigot. He's just doing it to push the boundaries because this is what he does and this is the humor and so forth and so on. You can take it with that grain of salt. It's um, it's uh, it, it's it's, you know, um, it's relative. OK, right? that I think that's kind of um, uh, that's that's where it comes from. So I, I would say, yeah, there's a lot. It, well, that's actually another good thing with uh, another good example of of what I was thinking about demographics. That was kind of the point I was trying to make with. Uh, um, I just made a comment. This new show, Alan Gregory. Ah, I've heard about uh, on, that on on Fox. I think it's on Fox. I think it's on Animation Domination. I've only seen it on Hulu, but um, yeah, it's a it, Jonah Hill project. Yeah, is it on Animation Domination? Is, is it on Sundays? Do you know? I think it was on Sundays, and then they were talking about moving it around. But I think it was on 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 Sundays. That was a Sunday show. Okay, I would not be surprised if they moved it, um, but I was surprised when I think I found out that it was on Sunday because I know people that worked on the pilot for Bob's Burgers, and they were telling me that the original look of Bob's Burgers was not at all what it looked like now. Um, mm. The the It had that kind of... Um, you know that squiggly outline like uh, Dr. Katz and um, home movies, you know, the squiggle vision. Right. Um, but uh, <clears throat> they wanted to create a unified world look for animation domination. And that's why, you know, uh, when Family Guy changed over to using, um, I think they used Toon Boom products, but I can't be sure. Um, uh, in, in any case, when they used uh, really solid, clean outlines instead of inking them. Uh, I think they inked for their first season or first half of the season. Once they moved to the to the computer in their second half, um, I mean, you see Simpsons also doing the same thing. You yep. see, um, you they, could tell by the yellows in the Simpsons. Yeah, exactly. I mean, everything. I mean, they were still using computers, but uh, in, in the Simpsons, I mean, they were using computers back then. But it wasn't. It's not this exact same process. And they, when they came up with the idea of animation domination, this this idea of of we are going to put all 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 of our edgy adult animated shows in the same time slots, right? Um, they wanted them all to look like they could exist in the same world visually, kind of straight, unweighted lines, um, fairly saturated colors, um, and and not a lot of forced perspective, uh, not a lot of um, uh, things like uh, three point, not three point, four point perspective, the fisheye lens, things like that. They have world rules to follow, and you can mm. see that all the way along the lines. Simpsons, Family Guy, uh, American Dad, Cleveland Show, uh, Bob's Burgers, and then this show, Alan Gregory, comes up, and it has this Art Deco type style. Yeah, it doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't match. Yeah, it, it looks uh, it looks different. The only thing I could, I could figure is it's got to be the name. It's got to be Jonah Hill. I, I I can't imagine 
any reason why they would break with that thing because the pilot of Bob's Burgers needed to basically be traced over. Remember we met, mentioned rotoscope? Right. It, they basically rotoscoped the animation. They basically traced over the animation that they did for the entire pilot, the entire 22-minute or 24, whatever they did for the first uh, pilot, um, t- uh, minutes of animation they traced over so that it would look like the style of animation domination before they fit it into that uh, into that time slot. That's so, insane. Yeah, I mean, that's that's changing things for a demographic. That's changing things for marketing. That's uh, that has nothing to do with the style or choices of the uh, Lauren Bouchard, you know, created the show. Um, you know, that's that that's completely a, a marketing decision. Um, I did mention one thing that I, I forgot to, to finalize, but in the beginning, I, I was mentioning um, Ryan Woodward, how he was saying that in the beginning, when he first started, people that got into the business, they just got in because they could draw or something along those lines. Uh, but then as it starts to get popular, especially the boom in the 90s with you know Lion King and Aladdin and um, all those movies got super enormously popular, uh, the people were going to school for animation people were going to i mean like in droves were going to school for animation and were coming out and were being much more studious and academics they have to be much more restrictive with their um uh acceptance process and so what you end up with is a whole group of people that are very very good at following directions Ah, there's and no there's no free flowing creative expression there. There is not a lot of dissonance there, and it's a very strange thing when you when you hear the stories of early Disney, and um, and and how much guys you know, masters like Ollie Johnson and and Milt Call uh, they, they would you know argue with one another and um, and and how abrasive Milt Call was. I mean, a brilliant brilliant animator, but abrasive. And uh, even guys like, uh, you know, Brad Bird, same thing, you know, pretty, as the story goes, you know, pretty abrasive at times, but um, but passionate about the project. You know, he's, he has a personality to him. And then you look at you hear something like um, uh, when Steve Jobs took uh, took the reins at, uh, at Pixar and, you know, built that new studio and uh, said that he wanted to maximize um, uh, maximize collision, uh, meaning that. When people walk from one room to the other, they all have to go through one kind of corridor. So mm. it maximizes the amount of times that you see someone from another department. So you're not restricted from one place to another, and and, and so you're maximizing creative influence. But that's a very, that's a very new agey hippie type of thing where it's all lovely, you know, happiness, and there were toys, and people were roller skating in the, in in the center area, and you know, playing games in the courtyard, and. That was not what the early studios were like at all. It was complete dissonance, and um, it's you know they're totally polar opposites. But uh, I don't know if one works better for for CG, and one works better for traditional. I'm not sure what the because you know Pixar does amazing things. They're losing a step now, but um, when yeah. you when you draw, I've always felt that drawing is something that even though you can do it as a group, it's it's really you a pencil and paper. It's yeah, very, it's very yeah. creative. It's very, it's a, it's a very mental process. So I can understand where the animation has evolved to. Oh wow, there's 50 animators in a room drawing. Yeah, but at the end of the day, it's you, your thoughts, a pencil, and paper. 
That's exactly right. Um, I think, uh, especially in, especially in animation, um, you know, in, in illustration, I think I heard this, uh, this described once where you're, 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 you're fighting with your drawing, you're, you know, you're, you're arguing with it, you're battling with it, you're fighting with it and you want to win. It, it, when you give up, when you stop fighting to make it better, then you've you've lost the fight. Now you know your drawing has won the fight, and that's pretty obvious when you have mistakes in it. You know you can look at it and go, okay, that drawing sucks. But I think in animation, that's really true because you have to be so consistent with your drawings. Um, but you also have to break the mold. You have to break the model a lot of times in order to make a pose work you know and, and that's something that they haven't really been able to do very much in cg because you're kind of locked to that model it's very difficult to rebuild a rig in order to um do things like uh make the elbow bend the wrong way or uh well i guess that's an easy fix but um uh, do you know what st- squash and stretch is it sounds so squ- familiar okay so squash and stretch is um that's kind of a um uh, that's a fundamental technique in animation. It's a very old technique. It's basically um, uh, simple things like, like um, if you're going to point somewhere and you lift your arm up, that's squashing. And then when you finally point, that's stretching. Uh, but it, it's more easily explained in like um, uh, a frog jumping. When a frog is jumping, yeah, the leg stretches. Yeah, before he jumps, his whole body squishes. Yep. And if you look at the frame, it looks like his body just elongated, and it looks like someone is actually stepping on top of him. And then the next frame after that is him stretched, where it actually looks like someone is pulling on both of his legs, um, where he's made of this kind of weird rubbery material that is not flesh. Like it doesn't it doesn't work in real life. But the reason that works is because squash increases anticipation or it increases impact. So a ball that's landing on the ground, right before it impacts, you need to stretch just a little bit because that's where it's traveling the fastest and it kind of makes it seem like it's blurry, if that makes any sense. It's it's traveling kind of fast, so it, it doesn't look like a perfect circle. It looks like an, an oblong. It looks like a um, an, an oval. Like and the then, Stretch Armstrong effect. That exactly like stretch arm stretch. So squash and stretch is something that's that's um, a fundamental principle in animation. But what usually used to describe to new animators, you say keep the form, keep the volume, right? So you squash the ball, but you're squashing the ball to 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 keep that volume inside it. You know, imagining that that uh, if you were to press on the top, it can only squash so far. It can't it can't stretch out at the sides. Um, uh, too much because it only has so much volume and that's true to an extent but there are times when you have to squash something or stretch something beyond the capabilities of its volume in in physical space and that's something that cg animation has a big trouble with because you need to you then need to change the volume of the character which if you're stretching him out once you put him back to non-stretch now he's you know a fat bulbous character so it's kind of a it's it's a strange um, it's a strange item, and I'm not entirely sure why I got on this. Topic. No, it, it's it, you, it's funny you reference the the, the squash and stretch uh, principle only because I've always felt that the one of the best cartoons that emphasized squash and stretch often was Ren and Stimpy. 
Oh yeah, Rennes yeah, being notorious for that. <laughs> yeah, John K is a. Uh, I, I I can't pronounce his last name. That's why everybody says K. Um, but he's you know the guy that came up with uh, Ren and Stimpy and and um, uh, I I have my issues with his blog. I have some issues with what he says. But there, he has a huge following of people. Um, you know he uh, and he does obviously have a, a, a passionate love for for animation and and all things uh, good animation. But um, I feel that sometimes he emphasizes too much of the illustration part because uh, he's an illustrator. He's not an animator by trade. If you've ever looked at the animation that he does himself, it's not it's not the most impressive stuff you've ever seen. He does uh, he does very good illustrations, but the technical aspects of his animation are not, not very high. But, you know, as soon as he's put up against the wall to to talk about it, he gets very, <laughs> very defensive and, and upset. I, I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't really want to talk to him because I think it would it would turn into it would a end terribly. Yeah, it would turn to yelling pretty quickly. I can just imagine. Oh, I have enormous respect for him, but um, you know he does he does talk about he talks about how terrible other people's animations are um, when they're actually quite good, but you know they're not they're not good enough for him. And everybody's entitled to their opinion. It's just. Um, I don't know. I think he's he's so so popular, and so many young animators are are following his credo that um, they lose sight he, of the people that were there before him. Yeah, yeah. I mean, things like I, I follow, I, I I bring people over to his blog for his postings on color, for instance. He's very good at describing color theory, but you know, he's good at describing things that are illustrative and he's good at talking about animation history and some of the breakdowns he does of animation but once he gets into the technical aspects of animation it's just uh sometimes it's a little more more hero worship than than anything sometimes i think that i have seen him point out a couple animations that were done by masters but it was pretty obvious from what it looked like to me that the guy was rushing it at that time i mean sometimes you can just tell if you're familiar with someone's work you can tell that they were you know they were on a time crunch and they didn't spend a whole lot of time on it and you know he'll just because the name is attached to it um he'll you know declare it a a, a masterpiece and you know mm. sometimes it's not not their best you know but um the ren stimpy was groundbreaking in so many ways and another example of something that was groundbreaking in a modern sense uh which you know led to uh him getting fired and ren and stimpy not having a very long run um so it's tough for shows like that to stay on, I think. Yeah, I, I, I reference that because that that was the Ren and Stimpy era was for me the era of animation where the boundaries I mean, now the boundaries are pushed, but back then I just got I got to experience it firsthand, you know, Ren and Stimpy, Rocco's Modern Life. Um yeah. you know, th- those cartoons had, had no qualms about just, just going into some really, really crazy i remember a visual when i was younger and it was powdered toast man saving the pope yeah and yeah. um he tells the pope grab onto my ass and i'm just I like i remember that yeah i'm like powdered wow did i just man. see that i'm like did i just hear that like yeah i don't remember crap. what episode it was but the one that keeps uh, picking out in my head and no one has been able to tell me what episode this is from but it was uh it was um it was i think it was uh, Stimpy was praying, and he was saying, um, "Please give me so and so and so and so." And then the last one he was, "Give me, I I pray for strong bathroom muscles." 
Yeah. I don't know why that stuck out in my head so much, but I, you know, I saw that when I was a kid, and I just thought that it, it was such an odd thing to to pray for. <laughs> I, I don't even know how to describe it, but it, it did feel like um, it was kind of funny. But it, it was, you know, it's irreverent, and um, I just can't imagine that that people were not pissed about that. I mean, they would be pissed about it now for sure. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there was, there were so many things in those cartoons. I mean, you know, him slapping Stimpy around, you know, a lot of bodily function, toilet humor, you know, the toilet humor, the toilet humor when it comes to animation is still, still touchy. I mean, I remember when they did, um, was it cat dog where, where the cat and the dog were on the same body and people were like, Oh my God, that's so, it's so weird. And, and yeah, things like yeah, that. yeah. You know, if you think about it, that was like the first. Uh, uh, it's like animal. Uh, w- w- um, let's see, uh, uh, house train animal um, centipede. Yep, like human, human centipede. centipede. You know what I mean? <laughs> that's right. That's that's creepy. I didn't think about that. Cat dog as uh, the the first the first uh, non human centipede. That, wow, that's... Oh, it was it was it was so bizarre. Like like cartoons like that. And I mean, I used to watch that. You know, stuff like Eek the Cat. Yeah, which was yeah. which was which was huge for me just because uh, I of really the madness. Ah, uh, uh, real monsters because it looked like Rugrats, but it was so the designs and the world was just so unappealing. <laughs> I mean, from a <laughs> from, but then you look at it as an animator uh, later on. You, you, now you realize why why it looked unappealing. Everything looked unappealing because it had to be grimy. It had to be grimy, but uh, but the layout was brilliant the layout was so good to the fact that you never got confused of what you were looking at on screen it was so dirty and uh and none of the shapes were really all that uh um unique and different from anything that was happening on the background it was all color and lighting and and layout to just make your eye go to the to the thing that um that that it wanted you to watch. I, I forget what that character was that looked like the snake that was the black and white, the the, the girl character, the long tubular yes. black and white snake. Um, I mean, she's basically camouflaged. If she wasn't black and white, I think they'd have horrible problems. But still, I mean, it's black and white striped, long tubular thing. How do you draw attention to that? And you know, if you keep an eye out for the layout, you can, you'll notice that everything in that background is pointing to her when whenever you know she's talking pipes and and you know um sidewalk lines and you know everything is pointing to that character so that your eye knows exactly where it wants to go and everything's everything is kind of um uh grayish and desaturated so that the um the the, emphasis is on her exactly yeah so yeah, some some there are some really cool things that happen with TV animation. I I think um, I'm reading this book, uh, uh, setting the scene right now. That's about the art of layout, and um, uh, they didn't talk about that, but it did get me to thinking about um, looking at, at layout and TV because one of the things the the author mentions is he doesn't say it explicitly, but the 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 way that I translate it is kind of like Hanna Barbera cartoons are like candy, right? They're not very nutritious. There's not a whole lot of stuff uh, to them as far as like technical aspects of animation, that sort of thing. But I mean, they they get a great amount out of it, right? There's a big punch to it, right? D- Disney is like your three course meal. It's fancy. It's uh, you know, it's a, a, a amazing pieces of uh, of of artwork in food, right? You know, it's this uh, hundred dollar meal, and then you have 
I think, you know, things like Warner Brothers, which to me is comfort food. That's like your mac and cheese. Mm-hmm. Right? I can agree with that. Yeah, that's and that's the way that I kind of translated it from the way that he was describing these different styles of uh, of animating and 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 technical um, technical know how. You know, uh, Warner Brothers. I, I I have a personal affinity for everything Warner Brothers. That all the Warner Brothers cartoons, I just I absolutely love them. Every Looney Tune that's out there, I love it. Well, and it, that's why I said Chuck Jones is you know a huge influence on my timing. You know, because it was all timing. They animated on twos. And on twos means that you're basically uh, – you're drawing every other frame. So if you're displaying it at 24 frames per second, you're drawing on frame one and holding it for frame one and two. You're drawing frame three and holding it for three and four, right? So you're basically showing the animation at 12 frames per second, not 24 frames per second. And that saved them half of the animation. Disney, everything like Goofy is all fluid and – and moving all around he's at 24 frames per second full animation but then you look at warner brothers and it is it's it's cut out a little bit but the essence and the characters could not be any more clear that's right it's, uh, amazing work well to 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 bring it full circle i and and this is a a, a softball question but it, and and i'm gonna pluck three genres out for for you to give me your take on if you can cite <laughs> one one influential piece of 2D animation that you felt got it right from story, animation, and just overall presentation, what would it be? Oh, uh, story, animation, and presentation, was that it? Yeah, story, animation, and, and presentation. Like, overall, you watch it, you're like, wow, this movie was done perfect from top, well, as movie. perfect as can be, well, movie or, or animated feature, it doesn't, either way... Whew. Um, boy, that's a that's a hard one. Uh, <laughs> you know the ones. That, I mean, there's there are a lot to choose from, to be honest. And I I think uh, one that's at the at the front of my brain because I was just talking about it, and you brought it up earlier is the Lion King. And um, I know that, and, and I had this conversation at the CTN Expo, uh, the CTN Animation Expo. Um, there was a, a lot of animators there, and we were talking specifically about the the 3D. You know, um, saying some people didn't like it, some people liked it, but uh, the bottom line was that it was a very tight script. It was a very tight um, story, and the songs, <laughs> in concept, should not work. I mean, you know, of course not. But uh, I think Elton John is quoted as saying. Um, uh, that he he was very close to not doing it because he says that is this what my career has come to starting a song with when I was a young warthog, um, I, I and that's the way I feel about that that movie is there uh, there are a lot of things that if you just tweak it just uh, too far one way, it could just fall off the map and be terrible. It's like Angelina Jolie's face, you know, you you push one proportion just too far. <laughs> <laughs> that is a that is an awesome analogy. <laughs> I was going to go with breaking a vase and then gluing the vase back together and it looking completely different. Yeah, I mean, it, the uh the and the other thing about The Lion King also is that having having uh, Mufasa die, um not not just die but die that way and then have have the kid come up 
and realize that he's dead and go, you know, just circle in and go to lay next to him. It's very, very touching and nostalgic, but you, you put more into cuddly things than you do in people. If that were people, I don't even think it would have that much of an impact. I think it had more of an impact yeah. when he crawled under that arm, not just for adults, but for kids, you know, because kids, you know, if they have a dog or a cat or something, they know that feeling of something yep. crawling under their arm and they just, and that happened. Uh, and then, and then here comes, uh, here comes the stampede, the most intense part of that movie. So, um, it, it, something like that scene, for instance, should, it, it was, uh, it was very ballsy to do. Um, especially in, that was the high point of their animation. I mean, that was the top grossing thing that, that is the high point in feature length animation of, of, of Disney's, um, canon of disney's uh, uh selection and that was uh kind of the beginning of the end really for high you know big budget traditionally animated features and it featured um you know the the will to be stampede which was um largely uh cg i mean it was 2d animated um uh 2d animated water buffaloes um that they then mapped in 3d and then randomized and had them run down and uh you know releasing it three times i think makes uh, and each time it comes out it breaks box office records during oh, yeah. the week it comes out that is not that has nothing to do with um with you know releasing an imax or releasing in 3d nope. that's just People magic not, that's magic that's uh that's the story that's the presentation all the characters had had wonderful uh uh, appeal to them you know i mean uh, there's i mean I, I could go back to other um other animated features as well but i think um that's probably the one that people know the most and overlook because it's so popular they overlook it how good it was and um it you know animation became unpopular after that point because you know the most popular thing in the world eventually ends up being you know kind of uh, looked down upon but um, I think that's probably a probably that, a good example. Yeah, that, that's a great example. And oh, and Scar is probably one of my fa- Scar favorite, is my uh, favorite character. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, oh, an- animated by uh, the great Andreas Deja, by the way, who um, all- also animated Jafar. Not and, surprised because Jafar and, and Scar oh, yeah. look the same. Yeah, and 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 very much in the same movement. But I think he really nailed it with uh, Scar. I mean, you, you you go frame by frame through that. It is brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Everything they did in that movie was great, and you know he's, Andreas Deja did um, um, did Tigger in the new Winnie the Pooh movie. I mean he's he's one of our masters of animation. I got to meet him at the CTN Animation Expo. Actually, he's uh, really great with his time, and and so that would be another person who's um, an influence on me, and and probably a, a really good example of of the entire team working together really well. Oh, and can I dispel one myth, by the way? Go ahead. Uh, Lion King. Um, so there's that big myth of the uh, when when uh, Simba is looking up, adult Simba is looking up to the stars, and um, he's saying something like, you know, Dad, why did you leave me, or something along those lines, and then he falls down, and the leaves go up in the air, and uh, and if you freeze frame it, uh, someone says it looks like sex. Yes, right? that yes. Sex that, there was out. a whole okay. there's a whole site dedicated to all yes. the weird Disney things. A whole thing. Okay, so the the leaves. He goes down with the leaves and uh, comes up and spells uh, spells sex. And um, that was a big myth. 
And if you go back to all the previous animated films before that, you'll see that in every single Disney animated film. It's, it's SFX, special effects, because they didn't actually have a department. So every single time they had an, an animated movie, the special effects department would get all these heavy, heavy scenes to animate. And they would pick the scene that had the most particle animation, smoke, dust, fire, things like that. And in a couple of the frames, they would spell out SFX. And it was just a thing for them to do, just the way that um, you know, a bunch of other uh, animators would you know, put, their, put their initials in somewhere in the, uh, uh, in the characters. Matt Groening put his, uh, his initials MG in Homer Simpson. The M is the, the, the hair, the hair. And the G is his ear. Right. You, you know, things like that. So it's SFX, special effects. It's not sex. So anyway, well, I'm well, I'm glad that got cleared up because I used to hear all the stuff, you know, I heard some for Aladdin and all this stuff. So I'm glad you can actually dispel that myth. I appreciate it because that that was something I've always wondered about. And I had considered bringing it up and then it just on the list of notes I have here, it just fell off the page. But I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm glad you can dispel that. But um, yeah. Disney Disney gets a lot of focus on that because you know it's a I think there is something that feels inherently evil about a company that makes so much money off of making things for kids. You know, you you want to think that they are all perfectly pure and and amazing and fantastic and uh and then just feeling like this company is making so much money off of something that is for children. Uh, makes people uh, read a little bit into uh, animation. Animation, in particular, in Disney, is probably the most the, the purest form of art that they have. You, know, you want to focus on some, focus on Disney World. You know, you want to focus on some, focus on the merchandising. But the animation itself, I can tell you, the animators who work on that are nothing but the the coolest, most passionate people around. They're just doing it because they love the art, and that's where the jobs are. So it's not. They're not evil. But I have nothing to say about the uh, the distribution company. <laughs> eh, no problem with that. Well, I'm I'm glad I'm glad you brought that to my attention. And the the second the second question was with regards to television. What's the what do you feel is the gold the gold standard for animated television? And there's there's a couple of ways that can go because you can cite you know Warner Brothers stuff. You can cite current stuff. What do you feel is something that just is always or at least most of the time flawlessly done from a television medium oh man yeah i'm killing you (laughs) i'm sorry (laughs) uh wow that's gonna be really hard i mean if you caught me uh, let's say maybe 10 15 years ago i would have said the simpsons okay Um, which is valid and you know it's uh it's a little disappointing because it's it's lost its uh, it has it's lost its step in in a big way. Um, it's no longer the did. gold standard for storytelling anymore. Everybody relies on Family Guy way too much. Right? Yeah, exactly. And that's not really that's not storytelling. No. <clears throat> um, hmm. That is a really good question. TV show. Uh, you know what? Honestly, and and this is going to be really difficult with. Uh, because I have serious, serious issues with the animation, um, but they did bold, bold things with the animation and the design, um, and the story is beyond compare. I'm going to go with Futurama. And nice. That's a, 
that is a modern see see now I kind of feel bad because I feel like I should be picking some of the some of the older uh you know some of the older cartoons for being groundbreaking this and that but um <clears throat> you know I am I am a child of the late 80s early 90s and it's uh, it's I? hard to it's hard to ignore uh things that were such an impact like that and obviously I you know I I sit down and I actually I really enjoy watching it but um I will say off the bat that the animation itself not not that great. And when I say animation, I mean the the smoothness of the transitions, the technical aspects of the weight distribution and that sort of thing. Um, not that great. And I, I attribute a lot of that to being the most of the in between animations, which means basically like eighty percent of the drawings that are on screen uh, were sent overseas to Korea. Rough draft. <clears throat> Um, which you know they do, they do good work and churn it out at a, at a decent price for for uh, the companies, but it doesn't come out looking uh, all, all that great. But what they lack for in smooth technical acting animation, they make up for in genius layout. Uh, the timing is amazing. Um, the way that they're able to play with their models is also uh, pretty amazing, especially Bender. You know, Bender doesn't have a neck, but most of the scenes you see him <clears throat> are, you know, when he's leaning down on a couch, for instance, and he's looking down at his belly. That angle shouldn't work. It shouldn't exist. But you as the viewer don't really notice it. I notice it because I'm an animator, but, um, you know, it's something that they play with their their models a lot, and they, they get a lot of great stuff. But the storytelling is some of the best some of the best around. I think they walk that line between homage and parody of sci-fi better than any real anything, a movie or TV that I can, that I can think of really um, because they do it consistently or they did it consistently. I haven't really seen the new episodes. Um, I, I saw a few, a handful of the new ones on comedy central and uh I decided to take a break from it because I and lost a little bit of a bitter taste in my mouth. I thought they le- lost a step, but the first four seasons are absolutely amazing, and the staging is fantastic. Uh, colors are a little little too saturated, but the layout is something to behold. That's awesome. Well, I, I was I wasn't expecting. I almost I almost said to myself, maybe he's going to say The Simpsons. So I was I was actually impressed that you you threw that curveball from going from The Simpsons to Futurama because the Futurama it's it's weird because it goes very it, it's become very underappreciated as as a cartoon only because it 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 was surprisingly well done and you know people lose sight of it usually it's The Simpsons a lot of people reference South Park as another as another gold standard and yeah i mean you know i could go with other things i mean i could go batman the animated series which is was a, that's one a, of my favorites that's it's a, that's it's tops, a dude. brilliant it's a brilliant animated series Hell there were yeah. there were a few things that they lost steps on um uh, a, a few episodes that were a little out of character which seemed like maybe they had a different writing staff on or something but um all in all you know, amazing work. Again, the animation was not, you know, top of the line, top notch, but they did amazing things with layout. And, um, again, the art deco style that, uh, you know, and the Bruce Tim designs, just you know, amazing. Uh, and I thought of another one, um, Animaniacs, since yes. I, when I was talking about late <laughs> 80s, early 90s. Animaniacs you know, was, was so great. That was something that, you know, if you're talking, 
you're talking comedy, you know, you're talking, uh, you know, kids show or that's, it should not be that good, nope. but they play with things like having, having, uh, having songs about, um, um, they did a song about, about the, the presidents and the yeah the states and and things like that and and they did edgy they did edgy yep jokes like uh, what was it it was um, baloney in our pants <laughs> uh, yeah what, what, what was the one I'm um, uh, oh shoot I forgot what it was it was um, I oh I think Wacko was looking around for prints like uh, fingerprints and he says uh, I don't see a lick of prints and um, and she said, and, and no, it was something like, uh, oh God, I can't remember what she said, but it was something like that, lick a prince. And then uh, you see Dot um, holding Prince, the, you know, the, the, the guy. And and she said something along the lines of, um, I don't know, uh, and do I or something along those lines. <laughs> but I mean, it, it just, you know, it was a little it was a little racy, but you kind of gloss over it. Um, that wasn't the best example. I can't really remember. But well, no, I I know exactly what you mean because they did something like that with uh, with the first Shrek. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I, I understand exactly the humor that you're you're citing. So it, and that's it, oh no, I think that's a good example of why I think Futurama tops something like uh, like Shrek. I mean, Shrek um, was playing homage and doing parody um, as well to, uh, to to fan to the fantasy world, but I. I don't think it did it nearly as well as what Futurama does with sci-fi. Futurama does with sci-fi is um, is is amazing. And what they did with their four movies, people hated those movies. I love those movies because I love each one of the genres that they were parodying. Right. They were, you know, they were parodying. Um, I can't pronounce that word very well. Parodying uh, sci-fi for their entire series, but then they did, you know, Bender's Game, which. Um, even though Bender's Game is a play on Ender's Game, which is you know a, a sci-fi um, uh, parody title, it was a fantasy parody with uh, kind of like a Lord of the Rings uh, style that was based around Dungeons and Dragons, and uh, and they parodied the whole fantasy genre, but within the world of sci-fi genre. I mean, you can't get smarter than that. You can't get better than that. So that's why I think consistently tops it out and um it has lost a little bit of a step with the the, the new the new upstart um uh, i haven't really uh, uh kept up with it but uh animaniacs did another you know they they paid beautiful homage to the old warner brothers cartoons and didn't crap on them like nope. the new uh like the new um uh looney tunes show does well there you but, go uh, you've we we we've touched upon everything. I think uh, I think we've uh, we we've covered two and a half pages of questions I had. <laughs> Not well, bad. Easy. All right. Well, just to, just to wrap things up, is there um, besides obviously Rubber Onion Animation? There's any acknowledgments or anything you want to promote? Anything I want to promote? Uh, no, not not really. Just um, just you know, check out Rubbering Animation and you know all the all the stuff. I think probably the easiest thing is Twitter. You know, if you follow me on Twitter, I put everything up there uh, anyway, or Facebook, I guess. But other than that, and Google uh, Plus, and Google Plus, <laughs> yes, uh, Google Plus. I love Google Plus. Huge community of artists there. And just great uh, – I think the quality of posts there – eventually it's going to drop down. But I think the quality of posts on Google Plus is, is pretty uh, pretty amazing. But I, I would say that if there are – this is the standard question. How can I get an animation or anything like that? Um, I, I always say this. 
Um, don't ask that question. That's the best way to get in animation. Stop <laughs> asking how to get in animation. Just butt your head into a, butt your head into a a career that you think you might not um, you might not have any business being in. I mean, that's kind of you know that's how I did it. You know, the guidance counselor tells you it's not a it's not a career goal. It's not a good option. Yeah, that may be true, but um, you know, still <laughs> give it a shot and just jump jump into it so everybody that's trying to do something i think you just you just need to do it and commit to it and understand that life is not a montage there you go all right well steven i appreciate you taking us beyond the mic (laughs) no problem thanks for having me all right brother thanks you've just heard my take radio beyond the mic offered exclusively for my take radio app owners and stitcher subscribers you can listen to live my take radio broadcasts every thursday at 11 p.m eastern 8 p.m pacific on the blog talk radio network blogtalkradio.com forward slash my take radio you can follow us on twitter at my take radio become a fan on facebook or add us to your circle on google plus if you are getting the episodes on itunes please take a moment and either rate the show itself or the app We'd really appreciate it. Thanks.